we tend to filter everything we read through our own uh, cultural lens, so to speak. Uh, and so, you know, we're obviously we're going to miss things. Hello, welcome to the Pondercast, where it's okay to think differently about the Bible and theology. Let's get pondering. Hello and welcome to the Pondercast. Glad that you could join us once again. Why do I always say that? I need to come up with something different to say, Drew. That's okay. Uh, like, it's good to be behind this microphone again with Drew Petker. Yeah, although this isn't really the Pondercast. It's supposed to be just the prelude, Perry. <laughs> this is thanks, just a prelude. Thanks for joining our guest hosts that we're introducing. Yeah, we thought we'd introduce them here just so everyone has an idea what's going on. Perry and I are both pretty busy these days, him more so than me, but, you know, I keep busy. But uh, we thought we'd hand the reins over to two, two gentlemen, two fellow scholars who want to take a conversation this weekend. So we thought, sure, we'll let them have the reins. So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, do you want to introduce these guys? Yes. So today on the program, we're welcoming... Our guests host Darwin Harder and Jordan Dudgeon. They're two good friends of mine from Nippon Bible College. Uh, Jordan is in his second year there, and uh, Darwin just completed his third year. And he is working on uh, being a missionary with uh, NCEM. Yeah, yeah, and this week, this week they're bringing us the topic of the idea of shame and guilt in society, and basically, and the whole topic is surrounded by the idea of. How does culture, how does looking through a cultural lens shape the way we read the Bible, shape the way we view the atonement? Mm-hmm. That is basically the, the crux of their conversation. Does the atonement change on where we live, how we take it, what our society deems important? And so they talk about Eastern and Western societies and how the different views of the atonement kind of play out. And they go through different atonement theories and stuff like that. It's a pretty good conversation. They they outlined it pretty well, and uh, I was very interested while I was editing it. They say you edited a lot in this one. I was like, what? Come on, man. I did the editing. But we got to do credits on these things, you know? This podcast was produced and put out by Perry Sittens, <laughs> edited by Drew Petra. Let people know. Well, I'm working on somebody else possibly editing these things, so oh. we'll see what happens. But I Nothing just wanted to works. mention that... Uh, we're welcoming these two guests onto the program mm-hmm. and uh, we don't necessarily endorse everything that they say. We're, we're, we believe in uh, thinking differently. So they're offering a different viewpoint and we're okay if, if uh, they disagree with us and we disagree with them. So. 100%. Anyways, hope you guys enjoy the episode this week. We look forward to uh, meeting up and catching up with you guys another week. Keep pondering. Well, hey, everybody, and uh, welcome to the PonderCast. This is uh, Jordan Dudgeon and uh, Darwin Harder, and we're filling in for Perry and Drew today because Perry's busy uh, planning his wedding, and I don't know what Drew's up to because I don't know who Drew is. What a bum. (laughs) Planning his wedding. I don't know. Did we do that right, Jordan? Was that a good intro? I think that was fine. Cool. Well, if not, Perry will edit it out later. Um, Yeah, so our, our, our... topic today that we're going to be pondering is guilt, shame, and the atonement. Uh, So Jordan, why don't you uh, just give us a rundown on on what we're going to be talking about today? Well, basically what we're going to be covering today is 
how how honor and shame play out more in the Eastern setting of the world and how they view that and how that embodies itself, uh, the honor-shame paradigm, how that embodies itself in the Eastern Church, like the Eastern Orthodox Church, and how the Atonement deals with that problem for them. And then the Western view is more focused on guilt and innocence. Uh, so we're going to look around and discover some things about guilt and innocence and see how that plays out in the Western representation of the Church, uh, maybe a more Catholic sense. And then we're going to see how the Bible speaks to both and what uh, each of you, when looked at exclusively or isolated, kind of gets right and misses. Cool. Yeah, so I think we're going to spend some time talking about, you know, how does our culture influence our perception of the atonement? Really, the way that we read the Bible and the way that we look at what Jesus Christ has done for us. In, in a lot of ways, this is influenced by our own cultures. Uh, and what I mean by this is, you know, in North America, uh, most of us come from a more innocence, guilt-based culture where kind of the, the primary problem that we perceive uh, as humanity is guilt, right? We've done things that are wrong. Uh, we've got this guilty conscience weighing on us and we need somebody to come in and take that guilty conscience away. Uh, whereas in now in general, more Eastern cultures, the Middle East, Asia, tend to be more focused on the shame of not meeting community expectations, right? Doing something that is, is frowned upon by your community and therefore bringing shame upon yourself, bringing shame upon your community, your family, etc. Uh, and so when when people in that kind of context who don't really uh, they don't have the same perception of guilt as, as North Americans do when they look at what Christ has done uh, they see it more so uh, from a perspective of, of removing shame of restoring right standing uh, and uh, restoring face really is what it is right and then whereas a, a Western view of that would be more like he revokes the bad legal standing you have and gives you a good legal standing because like you said it's different how people view it in these cultures in western culture it's there's a little bit of shame and guilt but it's mostly like say if i went to court for well not me i won't use myself because <laughs> i don't want to look horrible but say say an unregenerate man went to court for something horrible he did and everybody knows he did it the press knows he did it whatever in the west even if he did it and it was sure that he did it, but he got off free and he had no legal consequences of it because, uh, you know, just the way the system worked or whatever, he would still have a guilty conscience and that is part of guilt, but that would be a lot better for him in the West. Whereas in the East where they have honor shame paradigm, even if that man got off free, it would almost be worse because he's dishonored his family and there's not even going to be any sort of atonement for that shame or any sort of, you know, justice to make that shame right. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, how this plays out in the church, early Christianity, uh, obviously a lot of doctrines, kind of systematic doctrines hadn't been thought through and, and developed, but the way that early Christianity looked at the atonement, the, the work of Jesus, and even to this day, the Eastern Orthodox Church, they tend to emphasize uh, what they call Christus Victor which is that, that Christ is victorious, and that is, that's what he did at the cross when he died, uh, when he 
came back to life. He he conquered death. He conquered shame and and rose victorious mm-hmm. from that. Right? And in in that perception of that paradigm, it's not so important that we have legal right standing with God. What's important is that we are uh, accepted members of his family, right? That we have this, this shame removed and that we are, we are in right standing with God uh, in, in relational terms, not so much in legal terms. Mm-hmm. Right, whereas in, in the Western view, not, not to the negligence of shame, there's still that sense there, but it, surely in the Western view, especially with penal substitutionary atonement, well, that's not a Catholic view, it comes from the Reformation. Uh, it was really developed, really, really emphasized there, and that is like pretty much exclusively uh, a legal view. Uh, you know that we had a legal debt towards God, and we were in legal condemnation. Uh, but in Christ and under His works, because of His works, standing in them, we have a legal positive status before the Father. And it doesn't nearly speak to shame and uh, honor as much as the Eastern view in the Orthodox Church. Mm-hmm. And another thing that tends to happen when when we come to Scripture with these different worldviews uh, is we tend to focus on different parts of the story as well. Uh, in in the Orthodox Church, there's a really big focus on the resurrection. Um, there's you know the the celebration. It's all about Jesus rose back to life. Now, obviously, to come back to life, you have to die. That's kind of a, the, the way it works. But what they focus on is not so much that Jesus died, but that Jesus came back from the dead and, and restored that honor. Whereas in, in the West, uh, and, and most of our, our listeners will probably realize when I say this, we tend to focus more on Jesus' death. Hmm. Right? Easter, it's about, you know, Jesus died. That's, that's what we talk about on our Easter services you know, Resurrection Sunday, we'll, we'll talk about the resurrection, but we, we still want to talk just about, you know, Jesus died, and, and this is, Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died to, you know, give us life or, or whatever, but we talk about Jesus dying an awful lot, and we don't always think about, you know, what, what happened next. If right. Jesus died and stayed dead, well, that's not very good news for us. Right, right. But, and you know, he, he came back to life, but his death still accomplished something. Right, and you read popular Western thought when it's developing, you know, during the Reformation when they're splitting from the Catholic Church, when it's developing what the cross did and how someone's made right before God. You read early Reformational thought and you'd almost think that the whole deal was accomplished in the cross and that you could take away the resurrection almost and you'd still have your legal standing before God. Whereas, because we're not as, uh, we're not as concerned with victory or having uh, a, a status restored or our honor it's just that it's like not exclusively but pretty much exclusively uh, in our thought it's that legal standing before God that needs to be dealt with so it almost makes it seem like the resurrection doesn't accomplish anything besides a semi-necessary stamp of approval from the father uh, whereas in eastern thought the resurrection would actually accomplish a lot more and the bible speaks to both and both are right and uh, I feel like we miss a lot of things when we when we lean one way or the other too much. Mm-hmm. And that's something that uh, it just shows the importance of understanding 
different perspectives, right, on Scripture, uh, what it teaches, because we, we tend to filter everything we read through our own uh, cultural lens, so to speak. Uh, and so, you know, we're, obviously we're going to miss things. Mm-hmm. And, and Eastern people miss things too, right? They're filtering through their cultural lens just as much as we are. But when we compare notes, when we look, oh, this is what they're saying, this is what we're saying, a lot of their emphasis is stuff that we miss. And a lot of our emphasis is stuff that they miss. And so it's really beneficial, actually, to look at what people of different cultures think about the gospel, about scripture. Uh, and we can come to it then with a, a more full understanding of, of everything that it has to say. Mm-hmm. So how would you say then, Darwin, in the, in the Eastern church, in Eastern thought, or in honor-shame cultures, modern or ancient, either way, uh, in the church or in the public, like, what's their main problem? Like, what, what did sin make their main problem, and how does the cross fix that according to these, these cultures? Right. So, in, in Eastern thought, the, the problem with sin isn't so much that you've done something bad that you have to, you know, compensate for. The problem is that you've, uh, you've become something bad, really. In, even in, in Western thought, like, the way that we view shame, we think of it kind of similarly to guilt, actually, as, as a feeling of having done something bad. We, we feel ashamed. In, in the East, this is why uh, Japan actually has uh, a big problem with suicide, is that young people who, you know, they're not achieving as much as is expected of them, they're going out and killing themselves because this immense shame of having disappointed their family, you know, they've, they feel it not so much as I didn't achieve this, is that I am a failure now. It's not that I failed, I am a failure. Mm. And, and it's actually quite devastating to have shame in those cultures. And so for somebody with that kind of thinking, right, the idea that at the cross, at the resurrection, Jesus removed your shame. He's restored your right standing, your good standing, that, that you now have honor being associated with Christ in his honor hmm. um, that's that's really world shattering news and and it brings so much more hope than um, maybe a message of restoration of you know from guilt would in that context now would you say like something interesting you said there was in in these eastern cultures it's they have shame if they don't achieve something not necessarily even if they did sin, but even if they didn't live up to an expectation. And so then they feel ashamed because it's not as if they failed. They feel like they are a failure. Would you say that might be why the East tends to, could focus on more the life and the resurrection of Jesus? Because whereas, whereas they didn't live up to X, Y, and Z and achieve X, Y, and Z, it's not so much that Christ carried their sin away at the cross and did away with their legal standing because they're not thinking that much about it, but they're more focused on his life because he did achieve uh, the status that they feel shame if they don't achieve? Would you say that might be why they're so... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's that same kind of thinking, right? That, uh, you know, Jesus' life is super important because that's where he was honored, right? At his baptism, that was a tremendous honor moment where God says, you know, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. You know, God is just 
dumping honor on him. Hmm. Other instances as well. You look at all the times that the Pharisees and the religious leaders publicly challenge Jesus. You know, they're they're not trying to take away disciples by debate. They're trying to publicly shame him. Mm-hmm. But what happens every time, right? They try to trap him in a question, and his answer, it always, you know, turns it around on them and humiliates the the, the leaders, mm. and and honors himself. Right, and I guess if anybody if anybody was exempt from shame, it would be Jesus because there was there was no charge they could bring against him. They had to make things up to bring any charge against him, and they still they still tried to bring shame on him even when he didn't sin. That's really interesting. So it's almost like. Yeah, so it's almost like you could view it like in senses of positive and negative. Like the East more tends to view the positive benefits of the life of Christ. And the West tends to view more the negative sense, like the retraction of our guilt in the death of Christ. But, I mean, it's obvious. And this is this is where it can bleed into both in Reformation thought. It's obvious that we need both. We need the retraction of our of our bad standing, of our guilt, and we need the... We need a good standing and honor and the, the, the good standing of Christ attributed towards us. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Uh, you know, if, if I go to court and I'm, I'm accused of some crime and I'm declared not guilty by the judge, you know, that's awesome for me. I, I'm not guilty, but it, it doesn't do anything for my relationship with the judge. Hmm. You know, be, being not guilty, I'm not going to go to the judge's house after, after court and, you know, become a part of his family and sit down and have a meal that really doesn't nothing for my standing with the judge it just makes mm-hmm. me not guilty mm-hmm. but to have a, a positive putting on of honor right if if there's some of that element brought in you know god is a judge who not only calls us not guilty because of christ he's a judge who adopts us into his family and brings us home to feast with him mm-hmm. man that's so interesting how that plays out like the I've never thought of it that way. Like, I guess even because I'm a Westerner, I've always thought of it like the attribution of a legal good standing. But like, that doesn't make sense the way I'm thinking about it. I'm realizing now because as soon as I, through his death, when Christ took away my legal guilt, well, in court, there's no reward for a good standing. There's just, you're either guilty or not guilty. And so I guess when I've been thinking about the attribution of Christ's positive righteousness, I've been thinking of that as a legal standing too. But I guess it would be also very much like an honor-shame thing now that you use that analogy of going to the judges for supper. Because in a court of law, it doesn't matter if I have a bunch of good deeds. I mean, I'm not going to get rewarded for it. It's just I'm condemned or not condemned, right? Mm-hmm. And then, But what brings me to the supper table of the judge or what brings me to the feast of the lamb in a biblical context is that is that honor. So the positive righteousness of Christ can almost be viewed in like an honor-shame sense. Like he, Christ is restoring us I guess legally in a sense, but like first and foremost, he's restoring our, our honor and our status before the Father through his righteousness. Like you said, the Father just, just kept pouring honor on him in his life at his baptism and just kept affirming him publicly in all sorts of ways, and we become partakers in that. Yeah, and I think we, we do ourselves a bit of a disservice at times when we neglect to focus on, on this as well, when we kind of just get our, our emphasis that works with our culture and you know we go share a gospel that says hey you've got this awesome reward which is you don't get punished hmm. <laughs> and you know when when you're faced with punishment or no punishment no punishment is a pretty good reward mm-hmm. 
but when when we start to look at it from a, a more holistic perspective, right, we see that it's not punishment or no punishment that are the the options. It's punishment or honor, hmm. and and that's a that's even bigger uh, reward, a better message, greater good news, so mm-hmm. to speak. So I guess I we touched a lot on the Eastern view of what is the problem and, you know, uh, what's the solution. And I guess in contrast to that, we touched a bit on the Western view. But getting more into the Western view, I would say that the biggest representative of the Western church is the Roman Catholic church, love it or hate it. It's, I mean, they have... They have a lot of members. They've got the numbers. <laughs> more, yeah. more than Protestants, and so numbers are all that matter. No, um, <laughs> but the Catholics have their numbers, and so like I just I don't know. I think it'd be interesting to explore like how it, how it fleshes out in the Catholic Church this view of um, of of guilt uh, and innocence. It's really interesting because the Catholic Church does have like a lot of early church thought, but it's like a Western leaning of early church thought. So it's similar in a lot of ways, but like different in a lot of ways uh, than the Eastern Church thought. So like, would you want to, Darwin, kind of just start like with how the Catholic Church views the problem and like maybe maybe how that plays out in baptism, like how you're born into the problem, what's the resolution of that in their, in their Western thought? And then maybe I'll talk about a bit the flaws in their thinking as good as it starts out. Mm-hmm. So this is something that uh, it, it really starts out with Augustine. Uh, he's he's kind of one of the first of the church fathers to really talk about uh, sin in a legal sense. And, you know, he developed this whole doctrine of original sin uh, where he says, right, we inherit the guilt of sin from our forefather Adam. And, uh, you know, without getting into all the fine details of that, right, we see that it's a very uh, guilt-centered idea. And so in Catholicism, you've got two problems that you need to address. You, you have our propensity towards sin, right? This sinful nature that keeps causing us to want to go and do bad things. But you've also got this problem of original sin or original guilt uh, that, that they have to deal with somehow. And so in Catholic thought, there's this idea that baptism uh, as an infant removes the stain of original sin. Whereas, you know, Eastern Church is not so worried about that, that original guilt. Um, but Catholicism, because of the doctrine of original sin, they've, they've got this problem of what do you do with a baby who can't profess faith in Christ, right? But yet they've got this original sin to deal with. Uh, and mm-hmm. so the answer that they've come up with is baptize the babies. As, as strange as that would be to us... Uh, Baptists in the, <laughs> in the crowd. Yeah, we're all that's ever existed through church history. I thought I thought Paul was a Baptist. Well, he was actually a Calvinist, but oh, oh yeah, <laughs> uh, same thing. <laughs> and so, like, so how does baptism solve the baby's problem then? So, like, baptism washes away the initial guilt that the child's born with. That's that's the theory, anyway. Right, right. Unto right, and that's yeah. that's where I want to get into, like, where this kind of fails a bit, and how they they get it right that. They get it right that a huge problem is guilt, and they get original sin right. We're under the headship of Adam. We inherit his guilt. Uh, but I think what they get wrong in how they solve the problem of guilt and innocence is they do themselves a huge disservice 
by not recognizing how guilt is totally done away with in the cross of Christ. I mean, they would say that, but that doesn't practically apply to Catholic lives, I don't think, because practically they have to continuously be restored to a standing of innocence through the sacraments, right? Through mm-hmm. through baptism initially, it washes away initial sin. Then you'll acquire more venial sin. You do away with that through confession, penance, uh, you know, absolution, things like that. And then... Um, you are you're restored every time you do your penance right or you you say your hail marys or anything like that then you're restored to a good legal standing before god again and it's kind of just hit or miss whatever state you die in will decide uh if you need to be purged in purgatory or not to reattain your legal standing before god uh and in doing that they totally miss that that the 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 innocent standing for the believer is not because of the actions of the believer it's in spite of the actions of the believer and so i don't know it's just a huge failure i think that like they got it so right we're under the headship of adam and then here's how you get placed under the headship of christ it's not so much god's grace i mean they would say god's grace is the motivator for giving all these sacraments and god's grace helps us achieve these sacraments but it kind of does a disservice to the cross did the cross like just give abundant grace for these sacraments or is the cross actually a sufficient like legal declaration that we are legally right before god i just wanted to touch on that a little bit i don't know do you have any thoughts on that yeah and something that it, i'm kind of pondering through this myself right now uh, just as we're talking but that's that's the problem that we come in to when we we equate the work of the cross the work of christ in, in a one-to-one correspondence with our analogy of it, mm-hmm. right? So we've got the analogy of, you know, family and honor on the one hand and, and a kind of a courtroom analogy on the other, right? If I get declared not guilty and I go out and commit another crime, well, mm-hmm. now I've got to go back to court and i got to sort that out, mm-hmm. right? If, if I have shame removed, right, if I'm restored to honor and then I go out and do something shameful again, well, guess what? There goes my honor. Now mm. I'm brought back into a state of shame. Mm. The the work of Christ isn't a one-to-one correspondence with our own um, systems of, of being in the right or in the wrong. Mm. Right. Uh, it's not something that needs to be continually uh, gone after again and, like, reapplied uh, or, or re-achieved. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a once-for-all. Mm-hmm. Once it's applied, it's applied, mm-hmm. right? Um, and we don't have to constantly go and get it, get the cross again, mm-hmm. as if we've lost what we what we had. Mm-hmm. Because it's not, it's not so much that God made a covenant with the church, and the church can exclude herself from the benefits of that covenant by failing, being put out of the covenant, and then being restored to the covenant. It's that God made a covenant with Christ, and Christ brought great honor. Uh, to the name of the Father. Christ represented the Father perfectly, uh, and Christ had a perfect legal standing before the Father, and we're put in Christ, the covenants between the Father and the Son, and we're put in the Son and sealed in the Son. So it's almost independent from our actions. I mean, yes, we have to repent and believe, but that's a fruit of being in the Son, and that's a benefit of being in the one who did achieve perfect honor for us uh, and, you know, 2,000 years after his life, nobody can bring one charge against him. That can't be said of us. So we have that shame. And he had a perfect legal standing before the Father. I mean, even in the courts of his day, the scriptures say he was wrongly accused, 
but he still kept silent, so, but still legally perfect. He was both for us. Yeah, and I think, like, you know, there's, there's these warnings in Scripture against apostasy, too, that I think we need to take seriously. It's mm-hmm. not that we can just, you know, cavalier, nonchalant, like, who cares what we do now, now that we're in? I think there's still some very serious warnings against people who fall away from the faith. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's not something that we have to, you know, keep freshening up on. You know, it's not like brushing your teeth that, you know, you brush your teeth and you eat and well, guess what? You got to brush your teeth again. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's something that Jesus has done for us. Mm-hmm. And, and we just need to rest in that. Mm-hmm. Well, that was pretty helpful that just assessing the Eastern view of that and the Western view of that. And like we said before, scripture speaks to both. Um, so do you want to lead us off with some, some verses maybe that speak to either, I guess, and we'll just see what the scriptures have to say about it and how it applies to both honor, shame, and guilt, innocence uh, paradigms. For sure. Uh, so I want to go to Colossians 2, starting in verse 13, right? So it's talking about the, the problem of humanity, really, and, and the solution through Christ. So verse 13 and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Mm. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Mm. So there we actually we see an interesting convergence of both these worldviews. Right, what Paul is arguing for is is something that now very possibly his audience here was influenced enough by, by Roman and Greek civilization to have more of a sense of guilt and innocence uh, that the, the, the Jewish people wouldn't have necessarily had. But he, he talks about right, the, the record of debt that stood against us in his legal demands. This is very, like, penal substitutionary atonement mm-hmm. kind of kind of language here. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he goes and, and says, and he's talking about uh, like the, the spiritual forces of darkness by the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame, right? Those who were opposed to God, Christ put them to shame mm-hmm. by triumphing over them, right? So now this is where the Orthodox Church would want to say, right, he, he triumphed over them, he was victorious, he put them to shame, you know, he put the forces of evil to shame, he, he rose up in honor, and, and the, the Western Church would say, right, he cancelled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Well, Paul is saying, yeah, he did those things, mm-hmm. both of them. They both matter. Mm-hmm. Right, and then, I mean, I was also kind of thinking of... Um Romans, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So there, there's that, like, I guess, legal context. You have no legal condemnation if you're in Christ. So, like, very much in Romans 8, Paul's speaking to the legal state of the sinner. But also, I think something we miss, just because, especially when we're in Romans, we're so legally minded. And I think Paul does set Romans up as a legal as a legal uh as a legal document for the believer pretty much but something i also think that we miss is paul says uh who can bring a charge against god's elect it's god who justifies so there's also 
this like this social setting uh, that Paul's speaking to. Uh, if anybody would bring a charge against you, if anybody would say try to bring shame to you uh, in your culture or in your uh, you know social inhabitants uh, in your community, nobody can bring a charge against you because you're in this covenant. Uh, you're in the Son, and the Son has a covenant with the Father. It's God who justifies. So even justification, I mean, we we almost exclusively think justification legally, you know, but justification also has social implications, right? Like mm-hmm. when you when you sin and when you fall and you are brought into a shame stance before your community, Paul's saying, who can condemn you? Who can bring a charge against you? It's God who justifies. All, you know, this, this is a non-issue in the eyes of God. It doesn't, it almost doesn't matter what your culture thinks. Oh man, we could get into so much more stuff here about like the redemption, the new earth, because because in the new heavens and new earth, the whole culture will be a Christian culture who there will be no condemnation there of any past social blemishes. We'll all just be in Christ and that's all we'll be seen for and we'll be made like him. But were you going to say something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so like moving on in in Romans 8, what you were just talking about there, right? He goes straight into talking about adoption, right? You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Like when we cry, Abba, Father. Like that's, you know, Roman adoption, right? It's a legal affair, but it's not just a legal affair. This is a, a relational affair. Mm-hmm. Um, and and going on to verse 17, uh, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Right, really relational family language. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Right, we're, we're sharing in Christ's sufferings but we're sharing in Christ's glory, in His honor, mm-hmm. um, right? And it says, it says, in Him, uh, we're sons of God, right? God's our Father. A huge uh, part of honor and shame is like, what family are you part of? You know, who's your who's your dad? You know, who are your parents? Is, mm-hmm. Does this family have honor or not? But in Christ, like God, like the only perfect being ever, God, the God of the universe, is our Father, which is like the most honorable position that you can have. And it's in spite of us. It's not because of us. So it's like so great that our legal standing and our social uh, standing as far as honor and shame are totally in spite of us. And we have the best one that anyone can have, no matter how hard they work for it in the world. Mm-hmm. And just one final point I want to make about that. Uh, and this is something that it, it really impacts us no matter what culture we're from. There's still something about the gospel that is offensive to culture. Mm. Right? That, that Jesus would come to earth, he would condescend, and take on whatever unpleasantness that we're concerned about, hmm. right? Jesus didn't restore our honor just by having honor. Mm-hmm. He restored our honor by burying our shame. He, you know, he forgave our sin not just by living sinlessly, but by dying in our place. Mm-hmm. And, and Hebrews 12.2, I just want to look at here. It says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Right? Jesus was willing to take on shame, to take it away from us right to to be a substitute 
for us in our guilt and shame. Hmm. Uh, and this is something that, you know, if we just if we just want to talk about how Jesus removes our shame and how this this is awesome, right? But there's also this this thing that we have to see that the way Jesus took our guilt, the way Jesus took our shame, mm-hmm. he didn't just erase it. He took it upon himself. And and he he suffered with that. Mm-hmm. But he was rewarded and, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Like, that's the place where you want to be. Mm-hmm. Like, that is the best place to be. And, you know, that's where Jesus is now after he has done this for us. Hmm. And I keep, I've brought this up like a few times already, but I think it's really important. Again, like a false dichotomy we make in the West. It's like, we think of the cross. We, we even did it at the start of this podcast. Now I'm thinking about it. We were, we were making a, a dichotomy between the resurrection brings honor. The cross took away uh, guilt, but the cross also takes away shame so that you can get that honor. Like we think, I think at least as a Westerner, um, that the cross, like I've been saying and pounding on this over and over again, it seems like we exclusively think of it as the taking away of our legal of our legal punishment. The Father gave Jesus our legal punishment and satisfied the legal justice so that we could just not go to prison. But like you just read, it says he endured it despising the shame, right? Hating the shame. He took our shame on the cross. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in becoming the righteousness of God, we get the honor that comes from that. And when Jesus took our shame on him, not only did he get, you know, just punished by God and hurt really bad by God the Father for our sin legally, there was shame in that. The Father turned his face away from Jesus. You know, the Father couldn't look on his son anymore because it was as if his son had dishonored him, even though he didn't, because he became our sin and our legal sin brings social dishonor and and that's the position Jesus put himself in before his father like in the in the east with a honor shame culture mindset you dishonor your parents they might they probably will shun you right mm-hmm. that's that's your biggest fear in dishonoring yeah. your parents well that's that's what the father had to do to Jesus on the cross he shunned him he turned his face away from him and Jesus had shame as if he had failed his father and done all these things when we actually did all these things and we failed the father and we'll never even feel a fraction of the shame that Jesus felt on Calvary for us. Hmm. You have any comments on on that? Yeah, just just to say that like this demonstrates for us why Jesus had to be God, hmm. right? That he could take on all of that sin, all of that shame upon himself, and not keep it. You know, the fact that he was able to come back to life, he was able to permanently do away with that all you know that shame with that sin uh, old testament sacrifices right the the scapegoat that israel would lay hands on this goat and symbolically right transfer in their sin and they would send that goat away and they would send somebody to chase that goat because that that goat wasn't allowed to come back hmm. right it had the sin it had to be gone forever it could never come back Jesus took it, took it a step further, I guess you could say. He, he one-upped that sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Jesus took all of that guilt, all of that shame upon himself. He took it to the cross, and he left it there, and he came back, back to life. Mm-hmm. He, he rose right, to, he, to righteousness, to honor, and, and now through that, 
makes us a part of God's family, makes us right, righteous before God, and brings us into uh, relationship with Him. Hmm. That's interesting. So maybe maybe we should end on this. How would this fit in with like something I wanted to touch on is how this fits in with headship. Like we were under the headship of Adam, and this brought us great shame and right. Like I think we should go to Romans five because Romans five is so rich on this uh, this paradigm. Uh, it says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access uh, by faith into his grace, which we stand. So it's a standing there. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. So Paul just starts off Romans 5 talking about very seemingly legal terms, right? Been justified by faith, uh, by which we stand, right? And we rejoice. Uh, And then in verse 18, Romans 5 picks up saying, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, I would say that that would be shame and like a legal standing of guilt, uh, even though we don't always think about it that way. Uh, So, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's like this paradigm here of headship where... Like, Adam's our father. Adam's our father socially and legally. We're, we're all sons of Adam. Everybody knows that everyone's a sinner. You don't walk by anyone on the street and wonder if they're perfect or not. You just know that they're not. And everybody has this social uh, standing of shame in Adam. Uh, but I think this is a, a good place, if you have some thoughts on this after, that kind of, I think this wraps it up a bunch. So we had this headship in Adam that, that had these uh, statuses, but in Christ... Uh, for by the one man's obedience, bringing honor to the Father, honor to himself, uh, no shame in him, in Jesus Christ, by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We always think we're made righteous by his cross exclusively, but Romans is saying by his obedience we're made righteous uh, socially in, a, in an honor-shame in an honor shame context of uh, reputation and legally. Because he also goes into verse 20 to talk about the law came to increase the trespass. So it's both in Romans 5. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so like I think this is another point of conflict uh, with the culture at large where, where scripture says something that, you know, it's kind of offensive to us. This idea that another person could stand in on our behalf. And that, that comes into individualism and collectivism, which is another cultural idea that we especially in the west are very individualistic in in that we think you know nobody could stand in on our behalf and it'd be legitimate right each person is is responsible for their own actions and for their own standing Uh, but that's something that biblically we just don't find right we we see that adam you know through adam sin came into the world through one man and and death came through sin right so too through Christ comes righteousness and life. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a point where I think our our individualism isn't really helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, our 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 guilt innocence um, thinking 
it, it has its benefits to understanding scripture. I think in this case, individualism doesn't really help. Uh, and, but and we could talk about that for a long time if we really wanted to. But I'll, I'll leave it at that. Well, does that do it? I think that does. I think yeah. Unless we go too long, I think maybe we should wrap it up there. And do you think that uh, Perry's pretty busy right now, doing a whole bunch of really important wedding stuff? Oh, he's probably watching the election results and waiting, for, <laughs> waiting for Nevada oh, to be man. counted. I know if I was an American, I'd have a lot of shame right now. <laughs> I know a lot of Americans are hoping to bring Joe Biden into a legal guild. <laughs> oh, good times. Well, thanks everybody for joining us, and. Uh, don't forget to tune in next time to the PonderCast. Have a good one, and keep on pondering.